You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning. Growing up, I had a a very big basement. It was about uh, 1,000 square feet or so. Uh, Basically, the the basement was my hangout spot, and eventually it became kind of a a party spot in high school. But uh, the basement was uh, uh, basically concrete floors, mostly unfinished. Uh, a couple of the rooms were, were finished with carpet, tall ceilings, kind of your typical, uh, your typical northern basement. I once shared a story here uh, about a game I used to play in that basement uh, with my friends. I made it up when I was in high school. We won't revisit that today, but we'll just say it had to do with boxing and, and wrestling. But uh, little did you all know, little did you all know that before this game was ever invented, there was another game. Uh, I created it long before that other game. It was a totally different game, and I think I was like in the third grade or something like that, eight or nine years old. But the game was actually a bunch of little games inside one game. A bunch of little games inside one game, and the the name that I gave it was Theme Park. Now, uh, don't get any ideas this morning, but in Theme Park, my friends and and I built these uh, little rides throughout the, the basement. Uh, and, and not wood or metal, but uh, think, think chairs and, and couches uh, and, 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 uh, and swivelly chairs and things like that. So essentially, you know, you would you'd put a guy in a, in a chair, you'd spin him around a couple hundred times with a blindfold, or you'd take uh, the, the darts, uh, you have balloons set up on the wall, and you'd throw the darts and, and, and things like that. But there was this one ride that I made, and this, this was really bad. Uh, uh, I called it the Leap of Faith. That's the, that's the name I gave it. Uh, I was like eight or, or so, so, so give me a break. But the, the leap of faith was essentially me exploring as a, as a, young, uh, a young boy my limits as well as adrenaline for the first time. And essentially what the leap of faith was, was a, a bar stool. And the, the idea was uh, the, the bar stool was put kind of in the corner of the, uh, of the room, kind of like this picture. And then about four to ten feet away was a, was a pillow cushion. And the, the object of the game was essentially you climb up the chair and then you jump off the chair and try not, some of you guys, this is like, you did this, you did this last week, but uh, <laughs> you jump off the chair and you try not to smack dab on the floor. You try to hit the cushion. Now the kicker was uh, you had to wear a blindfold. So <laughs> um, I had no idea how I got away with this, but uh, that, that basically was the idea. So. So I don't quite remember all the story, but we had a lot of successful leaps of faith. And the ticket sales were high. And uh, a couple wipeouts, but, but nothing bad. But one day my friend, Nick, I think he was eight or so as well, he, he decided he was going to take a ride on the leap of faith. And so, you know, he bought the ticket. He climbs up the, the chair and, and he goes into a jumping position. And, you know, he gets all ready, he calculates how far that cushion is away, and as he jumps midair, he, he kind of shows off a little bit. I just remember he kind of goes into a frog splash, belly flop, and seconds later he jumps in the air and snap, dab, boom, crash, forehead right into the, the concrete, blood everywhere, chaos ensues. Now he recovered, you, you can laugh. Uh, <laughs> he's fine, but uh, let's just say the leap of faith was put out of its misery that day. 
and my theme park was uh, unfortunately shut down. <laughs> now, now I mention all that. Why am I mentioning all of that this morning? Well, I mention all that because we are starting the book of Romans this morning as a church. Who knows how long this will be? Six months, 10 months, 12 months, I am not sure. But Romans is all about faith. It's, it's the book in the Bible that best describes faith. Best describes the faith. And what we'll see this morning is that real faith is not like the leap of faith. It's not buying a ticket, saying a prayer, and then hopefully calculating where you're going to land and hopefully making it on the cushion. Faith, real faith, is God reaching out, showing himself to us, and us trusting him. It's us turning from ourself and from our sin and responding to God. And faith is knowing in whom you have trusted. Knowing in whom you have trusted. Knowing in whom you are placing your trust. You actually getting it. Faith starts with God reaching out. His truth. His life coming to us. This is a story, of course, of Abraham and Moses, and Noah, in the Old Testament. It's the story of John, and Peter, and Paul, and Lydia, and Mary in the New Testament. They're hanging out. They're chilling. They're just doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, God appears. God speaks. God comes to them. He pursues them. He speaks out of a burning bush. He speaks to them at a well. He speaks to them while they're fishing. They're confronted by the God of it all. And... Faith is knowing in whom we have trusted. It's growing to understand who he is and what he's done. Faith isn't blind. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just love God and love people. Faith is knowing Jesus Christ. It's knowing the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. And this morning we can know more and more of this God who has loved us and sought us by knowing and believing the gospel. Knowing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which really is my main point, the main point that flows right from this passage of Scripture. It's going to be up on the screen, and it's this. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Whether you're a Christian in this room or you're exploring Christianity, today, put your feet down and believe the gospel. Which means if you're here as a Christian and you're wondering what's your faith all about, what it is, these first few verses of Romans this morning is going to help us to understand what it is to have faith. What is the heart of faith? What is Christianity all about? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're not having faith. Perhaps you're exploring the faith. Well, this morning is going to challenge you to consider the gospel to consider what real Christianity actually is. My line's going to be up on the screen, and it's also going to flow right from the text, and it's this. What is the gospel? We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. And then the power of the gospel. We'll see that in verses 5 through 17. What is the gospel? And the power of the gospel. The passage begins, and we really see our first point. What is the gospel? Verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So the letter begins, and we meet Paul. He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's called to be an apostle. He's set apart for the, for the gospel of God. Something has happened to Paul. 
Something has happened to Paul for him to be saying this. And as we meet Paul in the New Testament, we realize something did happen to him. He experienced God's grace in the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember, Paul is coming from a Jewish background. And all of his fellow brothers and sisters who were Jewish definitely knew that God, Yahweh, was a God of grace. They all knew that. They all had a general conception that God is a God of grace. He's compassionate, slow to anger. They all knew that. But all of a sudden, Paul experiences the grace of God in the gospel, and he experiences a kind of grace that is beyond anything that he has ever imagined. It's the kind of grace that was given to him completely without regard to his worth. It's a grace that was given to him that paid no attention to his resume or his merits or his errors. It was a grace that completely welcomed him as he was. It was a real grace that changed his life forever. It was the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for so many of us this morning, we have experienced this amazing grace as well. A kind of grace that was given to us without regard to our worth. A kind of grace that was given to us without heeding or paying attention to our resume or to our merits or to our errors. A grace that has welcomed us. A grace that is personal. A grace that has changed our lives forever. Now this passage is going to continue. And we'll notice that Paul can't continue. He gets sidetracked here. He gets sidetracked because he is so eager to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's so eager to talk about this thing that has changed his life. That's at the center of his life. It's why he does what he does. He's not in ministry so he can do weddings or funerals or baptisms or church leadership. Although all those things are good, he's in ministry because of the gospel because it's transformed his life. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel, that word, uh, Greek, euangelion, it means good news. It means good news. It means that at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of the Bible, at the heart of the gospel, is not just good advice, but is good news. Not just good advice, but good news. Now, people get confused with this all the time. All the time. Like if you were to go up to a random stranger on the streets of Washington and say, what is the essence of Christianity? What is it all about? A lot of them would say this, it's about the golden rule. Treat others as you have been treated. Love others as, uh, as you would want to be loved. Right? Or maybe even more advanced, you say, what is the essence of Christianity? What is Christianity all about? A lot of people would say it's living like Jesus. It's loving people like Jesus. It's loving your neighbor. And essentially what they're saying is that Christianity at its core is good advice. It's how to live. Now, I think that's all good. I think we should all follow that advice. <laughs> I think the golden rule is good. I, I want to live like Jesus and love others as, as I've been loved and, and, and treat others as I would want to be treated. But that's not good news. The golden rule, living like Jesus, loving God and loving others, that is not the heart of Christianity. That is not the heart of the Bible. That is not the heart of the New Testament or the Old Testament. That is not what it's all about. Christianity, the gospel, is about what has been done for you and I. The gospel is the amazing news that God Almighty has done something for us through Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
And that gospel brings such joy. That good news brings such, such joy in our hearts that by God's Spirit, we are transformed. Without that, we're, we're left with just advice. And if Christianity is just advice, then it's not fully life-changing. It can't transform us. It can't give us the breakthrough that we so long for. It's just like everything else out there. And if it's just like everything else out there, you can expect people to respond to it just like they would everything else. And really, they can respond to it in one of three ways. We'll call them shrugged, bugged, or smugged. Shrugged, bugged, or smugged. If it's just advice, you can respond to it in one of three ways. Shrugged. Shrugged meaning indifference. Follow the golden rule. I know that. That's nice. Be content. Yeah, I, I know that's part of it. Thank you. Be pure. Yes, I know that's part of it. It's indifference. Bugged. Follow the golden rule. I cannot do that. I am exhausted. Stop. Be content. I'm beat up. I, I can't listen to that right now. Be pure. Stop. Don't talk to me about that. Right? Bugged. You're, you're bugged by it. Smugged. Follow the golden rule. Of course I do that. I, I, I completely follow the golden rule. I always follow the golden rule. Be content. I'm the most content person on the planet. I'm a 10 on the, on the godly scale of content. Be pure. Absolutely. Never have struggled with that ever. Right? It's, the, it's kind of the Pharisee response the self-deceived response. The point is, is that advice, if it's just advice, these are the ways we can respond. Indifference, yeah, I know that. Bugged by it, no, I don't want to hear that. Or smug, yeah, of course I do that, I'm the best. If it's just advice, it can't fully transform the heart. Only good news can transform the heart, and the gospel is good news. It's good news that God has done something to save us. God has loved us, he's pursued us, He's not forgotten about us. He's given himself up for us, and he's given us his spirit so that we can then live according to his plan and his work. John Bunyan, who's a famous author who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, said it best, everything I just talked about. He says it really best in a poem. He says this. It's a poem. Do this and live the law commands. Run, John, run, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Meaning it comes from the outside and transforms the inside so that we have the power to live for him. It's good news, not just good advice. The passage continues and this is where we see Paul getting even more sidetracked. He's eager to talk about the gospel he tells us more about it. First, he tells us that it was something that was promised in the past. Verse 2, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, that word prophets just means they're the law and the prophets. It's referring to the Old Testament. He's saying the, the gospel is something that's been promised and in the cards for a very, very long time. Like long, long, long before he was born and long, long, long before we were born. Uh, growing up, my grandma used to have this, this painting in her house of Jesus walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the road to Emmaus is a, a famous scene in the Gospel of Luke that happens right after the resurrection. Christ is on the road, but he's incognito. 
he's, he's, he's in disguise, so to speak, and the disciples are really, really encouraged, or discouraged, rather. Uh, they don't know that, that Jesus has been resurrected, and, and they're starting to, to doubt, was this really the Messiah? Was he really telling us the truth? Now, the, the easiest thing that, that Jesus could do, he's, he starts walking with the disciples, and he's in incognito, he's in disguise. The easiest thing he could do is, is kind of take off the, uh, the, the Groucho Marx glasses, those, the, the nose and the bushy eyebrows and the, the mustache. The easiest thing he could do is just take off the disguise and just show his glory, show that he's, he's, been, he's been resurrected from, from the dead. But, but he does something that's very interesting and on the road to Emmaus. He, he doesn't do that. He actually opens up the Old Testament. Jesus takes the, the Hebrew scriptures and he shows them how every single page of that book written over uh, by, by, by 30 different authors over 1,500 years, how it consistently points to one thing, the gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection. He believes that's more convincing to open this book and show how this all points to him. Maybe he opens up Genesis. And Genesis, Genesis says one day Eve's offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. Eve's offspring will undo the fall. Or perhaps he looks and says, Abraham, uh, the, the, the book of Genesis, Abraham, God says, your offspring will bless the world. And perhaps he turns to his disciples and says, the offspring, that's me. Or perhaps he opens up the, the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb. And he says, see that Passover lamb. It pictures what I'll do. Or perhaps he opens the book of Zechariah, which describes a king riding in on a donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, pierced so that the whole world could see him. And he says, that's me. He says, that's me, and so on and so on. He says, all of it points to me. Thousands and thousands of years before I came, it points to me. And the message this morning, the message that he would have had is have faith. Believe. Trust in Him. It's always been that way. To trust the God of it all. The God who graciously provides for us in the provision of His Son. Paul continues and he says another thing about the Gospel. Verse 3. The Gospel of God concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the gospel is all about Jesus who is raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is both God and man, he says. He's the son of God, which implies that he's divine. He's pre-existent. He's, he's the son of God, and as the son of God, he's God. He always has been and always will be eternity. But notice he's also the descendant of David. He's the descendant of David, which means there was a time he was born. A couple thousand years ago, there was a time when the eternal Son of God became Jesus Christ, the incarnation, Christmas. So he's fully God, and he's fully man. Now, if you're confused, or if that just went right over your head, you're in good company. This is mind-boggling. And it certainly would have been mind-boggling and confusing in the first century when Jesus walked the earth. For instance, can you imagine a simple question like, hey Jesus, how old are you? What do you say? Well, on my mother's side, I'm mortal. But on my father's side, I'm eternal. And they're like, what? What is this guy all about? So he goes on to explain. 
On my mother's side, I get hungry. But on my father's side, I fed a multitude. On my mother's side, I get thirsty. But on my father's side, I'm the living water. On my mother's side, I get emotional. I wept at Lazarus' tomb. But on my father's side, I raised him from the dead. I could go on and on. On my mother's side, I still get sleepy. I fell asleep on the boat. But on my father's side, I calm the wind and the waves. On my mother's side, I have nowhere to lay my head. But on my father's side, I own the fullness of this earth. I own all of it. My mother thought it was agony on the cross. But on my father's side, on the third day, I was raised to life. There will never be another Jesus Christ. He's not one among many. He's the one and only. God who sent his son for us, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died, and he rose again. Believe in him this morning. Trust in him this morning. Have faith in the gospel. Trust in him. The passage continues, and we really see our second point this morning, the power of the gospel. Paul's going to go on, and we'll see that it's this gospel that's impacted him. It's changed his life deeply. It's given him a new life mission. It's given him a bigger purpose. It's given him a new community. He has new aims, new hopes, new dreams. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Mission, purpose. We might not be apostles, but we're part of God's mission, part of his church, part of his redemption of the world, wanting others to know him. He goes on highlighting identity, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, loved, called to be saints, our identity as believers this morning. Then he adds some personal words, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. That's his way of saying everyone, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He adds in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's not superiority or favoritism to the Jews. It just means the gospel was initially first preached to them before being offered to others. But the point of what he's saying here is that, hey, the gospel is not just good advice. It's, it's good news. It's brought grace. It's backed up by history and prophecy. It's all about Jesus, who is totally unique. And even as I'm going into Rome, I'm going into Rome to talk about it, into one of the hardest places, I'm not ashamed. Now, why is that? Rome is going to laugh at him. Rome is the heart of the empire. It's the center of intellectual arrogance. Rome's laws were the foundation of the world. 
Its military was first class. Its art was first class. And much like where our society perhaps is heading today, being a Christian in Rome at that time was not having the moral high ground. Christian views on sexuality and gender and discipleship made believers seem actually immoral to people in that culture, as bigoted and as wrong, as being unethical. But Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Anyone who will have faith, anyone who will hear his voice and trust in him. It's the power of God for salvation. Why is that? Why is that? Well, verse 17, it's one of the greatest descriptions of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's the thesis statement of this entire book. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel is a righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that word righteousness is really key. That word righteousness is really key key. People don't use that word a lot these days. But the fact is, is everybody is struggling for righteousness. Everybody is struggling for righteousness. Whether they know it or not, we're all looking for it. We're all looking to be validated in some way. We're all looking for worth, for affirmation, for approval. Some of us do that through money. I'm going to be rich. Some of us do that through beauty. I want to be more beautiful. Some of us do that through achieving. I'm a successful person. Some of us do that through morals. I'm a family person. Whatever it is, the fact is, is everybody is struggling for righteousness. Yes, even those who say, my worth, my value, my approval, all of it comes from within. It's, it's self-worth, self-approval, self-acceptance. It's good to be confident. That can work for a while. But the reality is, is that self-worth, self-approval, self-acceptance are never completely self-contained. Hardwired in us is a desire for human connection, to be validated in some way. You may live like that for a while, perhaps you're trying to, relying only on your inner voice to give you value, but it's not sustainable when you go through pain. No human being can fully validate themselves or justify themselves. Lots of battles in society today are all about this. Affirm me, approve me, declare me virtuous. We're all looking for righteousness. We're desperately struggling for it, whether we know it or not. But righteousness is a moral concept at the end of the day. It has to do with being good, with being fair, with being pure. It has to do with being a person of integrity, being a person of honesty, being a person of consistency. As a human being, we were made to be righteous, to live according to our Creator's design. But if you've ever thought about God, or you've thought about yourself in comparison to God, you, you realize very quickly, you're not righteous. I'm not righteous. In fact, the book of Romans will tell us we are all imperfect. We are all unrighteous. In the words of the legendary Chris Pratt, nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way you are. You are not. You're imperfect. You always will be. But righteousness is what we need. We crave it to be affirmed, to be validated, to be right, 
to be in communion with God. We need righteousness. Think of it like this. We need a plus in our column. Righteousness is a plus. But the truth is, we don't have a plus. Actually, the bad news is we have a minus. A lot of minuses. We have unrighteousness. And unrighteousness is also a moral concept. It has to do with injustice and impurity and dishonesty and deceit and inconsistency and falsehood. Sin. We have a minus. Lots of minuses in our column. But the gospel is this. That God himself steps in. In Jesus Christ, he dies for the minuses. All of them. He takes the penalty for the negative. He takes the penalty for the minuses. He dies in our place under the righteous, perfect justice of God. And on the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies and breathes his last. And yet three days later, he comes back to life. And God looks at his righteous life, his goodness, his faith, his love, his humility, his obedience. And God says, anyone that wants the plus can freely have it from faith for faith. You can receive the very righteousness of God, a righteousness that is in Jesus Christ for you. What that means is a cancelization, a canceling of all of your minuses, all of it this morning. And in exchange for what? In exchange for his plus. The exchange of his record. All of it this morning. Said another way, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Chris Pratt finishes the line. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way you are. You are not. You're imperfect. You always will be. But if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. Grace that was paid for with somebody else's blood. Do not forget it. Don't take it for granted. All of that is called what we call justification. And it's the heart of what the Bible and Christianity and the gospel is all about. Jesus in our place. And through faith, faith in him alone because he's big enough and strong enough, he's enough, we can be declared righteous by God Almighty. God can look at us and say, because you're connected to him, my very righteousness, I declare you righteous. I affirm you. I validate you. I declare you not guilty, but instead righteous because of Jesus Christ. It's not by works, Ephesians says, lest we should boast. It's by faith in the strong power of God who raised his son from the dead. I recently shared the story of a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones with some guys I recently started ministering to. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, was a doctor that eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ. But before that, he really his story started while he was in med school. And he had kind of a belief, but not a faith. Kind of a, a belief in God in general, but not a faith, a trusting faith, a rest in Jesus. And he had this friend who had it all. And, and Lloyd-Jones looked up to this, this friend. His friend was on the top of the medical profession and he had all the status and all the, all the, the fame and the notoriety and all that stuff. And one day his friend 
uh, his friend's fiance, who, who this guy was going to marry, suddenly got sick and, and she died. And the story goes is that he goes over to Lloyd-Jones's house and, and the two of them just kind of sit outside by the fire. And Lloyd-Jones's friend, as you would expect, is just completely broken. He's just com completely broken by this and he stares into the fire for, for two, two and a half hours and doesn't say a word. But Lloyd-Jones recounts this experience, and he says this experience shook him. And for whatever reason, in that moment for him, this is when he heard the call of God. He says it was in this moment that belief became faith. He says this, That moment shook my foundations. I saw the vanity of all human greatness. I realized all the success in the world, all the status in the world, all the education in the world, all the money in the world was insufficient to face life. The point is, in this life, we need faith. We need a real faith in Jesus Christ. Not external religion, not just morality, but a saving faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. As the passage goes on, if righteousness could be gained by following laws, Christ died for nothing. We need faith. That's how we face life. It's how we have life and the next life. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.